Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moira Lady McLean, and tonight I'm joined by political economist Kieran Andrew. Always nice to be here with you, Moira. Thank you so much for having me back on. Oh, wow. Very effusive thank you. I'm going to demand that from everybody who comes on with me. Coming up later tonight, Boris Johnson spends his second day at the COVID inquiry facing questions on his government's handling of the pandemic. Activists have shut down weapons factories that are supplying arms to Israel. And we'll be looking at some of the latest events taking place in Gaza. Let's go to our first story. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has wheeled out his Stop the Boats backdrop again. He started the day with an emergency press conference addressing his new Safety of Rwanda Asylum and Immigration Bill. This bill has caused divisions within his party, so Sunak had to get out the small boats bunting once more. Our bill today fundamentally addresses the Supreme Court's concerns over the safety of Rwanda. I did not agree with that judgment, but I respect it. That is why we have spent the last three weeks working tirelessly to respond to their concerns and to guarantee Rwanda's safety in a new legally binding international treaty. The Supreme Court were clear that they were making a judgment about Rwanda at a specific moment 18 months ago and that the problems could be remedied. Today, we are confirming that they have been and that unequivocally, Rwanda is a safe country. And today's bill also ends the merry-go-round of legal challenges that have blocked our policy for far too long. We simply cannot have a situation where our ability to control our borders and stop people taking perilous journeys across the channel is held up in endless litigation in our courts. So this bill gives Parliament the chance to put Rwanda's safety beyond question in the eyes of this country's law. Parliament is sovereign. It should be able to make decisions that cannot be undone in the courts. And it was never the intention of international human rights laws to stop a sovereign parliament removing illegal migrants to a country that is considered safe in both parliamentary statute and international law. So the bill does include what are known as notwithstanding clauses. These mean that our domestic courts will no longer be able to use any domestic or international law, including the Human Rights Act, to stop us removing illegal migrants. Let me just go through the ways that individual illegal migrants try and stay. Claiming asylum, that's now blocked. Abuse of our modern slavery rules, blocked. The idea that Rwanda isn't safe, blocked. The risk of being sent to some other country, blocked. And spurious human rights claims, you'd better believe that we've blocked those two because we're completely disapplying all the relevant sections of the Human Rights Act. Completely disapplying all the relevant sections of the Human Rights Act? That just about sums up the policy here. Human rights? Why they're flexible, of course. Sunak wasn't finished, though. Not only have we blocked all of these ways, that illegal migrants will try and stay, we've also blocked their ability to try and stay by bringing a judicial review on any of those grounds. That means that this bill blocks every single reason that has ever been used to prevent flights to Rwanda from taking off. The only extremely narrow exception will be that if you can prove with credible and compelling evidence that you specifically have a real and imminent risk of serious and irreversible harm. We have to recognise that as a matter of law. And if we didn't, we'd undermine the treaty we've just signed with Rwanda. As the Rwandans themselves have made clear, if we go any further, the entire scheme will collapse. And there is no point having a bill with nowhere to send people to. Yes, no point indeed. A reminder, this new Rwanda bill is essentially a piece of paper that says Rwanda is safe because we say it is. And it accompanies a treaty with Rwanda that was signed last week but has yet to be ratified by both houses of parliament. The treaty specifies that Rwanda cannot relocate asylum seekers sent there from the UK to any other country, but it can send people 
back to the UK. It also pledges the establishment of new committees and appeal body for deported asylum seekers to access. Pledges being the operative word. This legislation is all designed to get round a recent Supreme Court judgment which ruled Rwanda is not a safe country to deport asylum seekers to. That judgment stopped the ongoing Rwanda deportation plan in its tracks. Now Sunak is trying to resurrect it via patchwork legislation with an initial commons vote on the Rwanda bill coming next Tuesday. Remember, it's not a confidence vote, but he is facing intense pushback on these latest efforts from both the left if you can call it that, the middle and the right of the Tory party. Yesterday, Sunak faced the resignation of Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick over the Rwanda bill, which has been a major blow to his already shaky authority. But Jenrick didn't resign in protest at this legislative decree that the government could ignore human rights. No, he resigned because he didn't think Sunak was dismissing human rights enough. Here is some of what Robert Jenrick wrote in that resignation letter. I cannot continue in my position when I have such strong disagreements with the direction of the government's policy on immigration. As you know, I have been pushing for the strongest possible piece of emergency legislation to ensure that under the Rwanda policy, we remove as many small boat arrivals as swiftly as possible to generate the greatest deterrent effect. The government has a responsibility to place our vital national interests above highly contested interpretations of international law. In our discussions on the proposed emergency legislation, you have moved towards my position, for which I am grateful. Nevertheless, I am unable to take the currently proposed legislation through the Commons, as I do not believe it provides us with the best possible chance of success. Quite an interesting little tidbit there where he says, you know, you've moved towards my position, which what you can infer there about Rishi Sunak's original position is interesting. Um, but the translation of that entire text is, you won't parachute the UK fully out of international human rights law, so I'm resigning. Robert Jenrick, if you remember, rose to prominence after being promoted by Boris Johnson in 2019 to be housing minister. There he weathered a lobbying scandal for, quote, unlawfully approving a multi-million pound development by a major Tory donor. He was also heavily criticised during his time in office by the bereaved families of Grenfell Tower victims for his, quote, perceived focus on the interests of property developers over the needs of an impoverished local community. Serving as immigration minister from October 2022, Jenrick consistently pushed for the stricted possible policies. Perhaps the most telling incident of his tenure was when he infamously ordered a children's mural to be painted over in one immigration detention centre. Of course, he wasn't alone in these efforts to further immiserate people detained under immigration law. His boss, until last month, was Suella Braverman, and she has been piping up with her opinion on Sunak's latest plan to keep the Rwanda scheme alive. Braverman made her first speech in the Commons on Wednesday since her sacking as Home Secretary in November, and she used the time to further go on about her favourite topic, small boats. All of this, Madam Deputy Speaker, comes down to a simple question. Who governs Britain? Where does ultimate authority for the UK lie? Is it with the British people and their elected representatives? Or is it in the vague, shifting, and unaccountable concept of international law? On Monday, Madam Deputy Speaker, the Prime Minister announced measures that start to better reflect public frustration on legal migration. He can now follow that up with a bill that reflects public fury on illegal migration and actually stop the boats. Finally, Madam Deputy Speaker, it is now or never. The Conservative Party faces electoral oblivion in a matter of months if we introduce... The Conservative Party faces electoral oblivion in a matter of months if we introduce yet another bill destined to fail. Do we fight for sovereignty or do we let our party die? I vote option two. Now, Downing Street are not happy with Braverman's intervention, as Radio 4's Nick Robinson informed her during a tense interview this morning. It's interesting that you use the word reality, because in the last hour or so, a Downing Street spokesman has said that you are denying reality. The Rwandan government ministers say have made it clear that they will not be party to an agreement that breaches international law. So are you 
denying the reality that what you are recommending would be ripped up by the Rwandan government. No, I'm very surprised by the statement which has been put out by Downing Street and the Prime Minister on this, because on the one hand, the bill that the Prime Minister himself has put forward makes clear that they are disapplying elements of international law um, to, to a degree. On the face of the bill, the Secretary of State cannot confirm that the bill complies with international law. So on that basis, uh, there would be a problem on, uh, given the statement made by a Downing Street. Uh, secondly, it's not true. I would also say that the measures that I'm proposing do not breach international law. You say there it's is not a perfectly, true, what If I can just finish the point, because it's quite important. The measures that I've proposed do not breach international law. There is a perfectly legitimate basis in international law for justifying the measures that I've put forward. The grilling did not stop there. Nick Robinson went on to ask the former Home Secretary about her relationship with Rishi Sunak. I want the Prime Minister to succeed in delivering on his pledge to stop the boats. You want, I want the Prime Minister to succeed. to succeed. You've previously described him in the letter after, let's just remind you, you were sacked, you didn't resign, as uncertain, weak and lacking in the qualities of leadership that this country needs. Do you seriously expect people to believe that you want Rishi Sunak to succeed rather than what everybody assumes is that you want to bring him down and take over his job? The reality is, Nick, that we are uh, all Conservatives. I want this Prime Minister to fulfil his promise that he made to stop the boats. He said he would do whatever it takes. Will he lead I you into the next him, election? I've told him what it will take to stop the boats. Fascinating little thing there. You were sacked. You didn't resign. Just had to remind her. Um, he also did not buy Braverman's lip service to loyalty, though. Even... Nick Robinson also said he had knowledge that she had attended meetings plotting against Rishi Sunak, continuing as the leader of the Tory party. People are talking about changing the leadership. You know they are. And I suggest to you that you've had meetings to discuss it as well. So I'm going to ask you again, if he doesn't do what you demand, will you plot against him to remove him as leader of the Conservative Party? I want the Prime Minister to succeed in stopping the boats. He said he would do whatever it takes. I'm telling him there is a way to succeed in stopping the boats, in fulfilling that promise. And, and if we do it, if he does it as prime minister, he will be able to lead us into the next election, telling the people that we succeeded on this very important pledge. And that's what I want. It's all giving... Brexit, isn't it? It's really reminding of the beleaguered days of Theresa May when you had all these members of the ERG focusing their efforts on it. She needs to get this done. She needs to get this done. We won't rebel if she gets this done. You need to get it done our way. But Rishi Sunak has kind of made this bed of his own accord because he didn't have to take on this Rwanda policy with the verve that he has. And now he's made it such a, I think the word that I heard you today was totemic issue, political issue, that he has no choice. And he's sort of screwed the pooch either way. Um, but Nick Robinson wasn't done there with Suella. When you're on the radio and the television, Suella Bradman, you talk about substance, you talk quite reasonably. When I ask you questions about tough language, you sort of laugh at me as if I'm the one talking about a conservative death wish. You've condemned the leader of your party's uncertain, weak and lacking in leadership. You've said he never had any intention of keeping his promises. You've accused him of betrayal and wishful thinking. You've attacked lawyers, judges, civil servants, the head of the Metropolitan Police, people who are worried about deaths in Gaza. You've attacked the homeless. You've attacked migrants as being part of an invasion. Isn't the truth you're a headline grabber who does it by spreading poison even within your own party? The truth is that when I served as Home Secretary, I sought to be honest. Honest to the British people, honest for the British people. And sometimes honesty is uncomfortable. But I'm not going to shy away from telling people how it is and from plain speaking. And if that upsets polite society, then I'm sorry about that. But the point is that we need to be honest. We need to be clear-eyed about the situation right now. We can't keep failing the British people. We have made promises after promise. We have put forward plan after plan. They have all failed. And we have now run out of time. This is a, a, an issue of huge importance to the majority of British people who desperately want us to fix it. We need to be honest about that. And, if, and only if we're honest will we have a chance of properly fixing it and resolving this issue. You say it's necessary to tell it how it is. Wouldn't the honest answer be to say, 
it's always all about you. No, I wouldn't say that at all. I, I gave a statement yesterday when I talked almost exclusively about the policies and what we need to do. And that's what I'm on this show to talk about. I'm very concerned that the bill on the table will allow a merry-go-round of legal claims and litigation. The solution to that is a form of ouster clause which excludes individual claims, which limits the justiciability of some of those claims so that we can get decisions made by the Secretary of State to detain and remove and flights off to Rwanda as quickly as possible. My my, my statements have been focused on policy uh, and I urge the Prime Minister to change course and change policy. Post the reshuffle, One Nation Tories have chosen Rwanda as a battlefield to fight back against the hard right domination and takeover of the party. And they've been urging a rethink of plans to override the Human Rights Act. So neither the right nor the centre of the Tory party are currently backing their Prime Minister's flagship policy. And there's a big vote next week. This is the problem with choosing a hill, you see. You will sometimes end up dying on it. And in one final damning indictment, even Rwanda might be getting cold feet. ITV reporter Paul Brand shared this statement from Rwanda's foreign minister. It's always been important to both Rwanda and the UK that our rule of law partnership meets the highest standards of international law, and it places obligations on both the UK and Rwanda to act lawfully. Without lawful behaviour by the UK, Rwanda would not be able to continue with the migration and economic development part. The UK government's attempts to shake off international human rights law might even have made Rwanda nervous about payoff versus the cons. And given that the country is currently backing a very brutal campaign of ethnic cleansing in the Democratic Republic of Congo that has repeatedly broken international law, I think that says a lot about how much bad publicity Sunak's plan has managed to attract. Kieran, there's no way we'll get a new Tory PM before Christmas, or an election even, is there? Well, first of all, I may have started off... uh, effusively but something tells me the effusiveness is going to end here and now um i think it's to your question i think it's unlikely but not impossible i think it's unlikely because should sunak sense that the vultures are really circling uh one would assume that he'll bring forward an election um is that foolproof no but that's what i would assume would happen so my expectation is that we won't see another prime minister before an election. Um, but there's so much instability in the Tory party. It's so full of brazen, self-centered careerists um, that could describe a lot of the British political establishment. But I think we've seen it particularly vividly illustrated in the upper echelons of the Tory party over recent years. I just don't suspect that uh, anything is certain on that front. But all of this, and I think more interestingly, speaks to a larger phenomenon, which I suppose many people listening to or watching this will will certainly be familiar with, which is that the the Tory party at this point in time and in this point at this point in its electoral cycle seems to have lost any semblance of coherent ideology. I mean discipline went a long time ago. But at this point, it seems to me to be completely fragmented ideologically as well. Europe has always bedeviled the Tory party as political pundits, let's say. And that's going back to the 1960s, probably true. But now it seems to be basically everything that they seem to make, in your words, Moya, totemic. So immigration, uh, constitutional matters, net zero, uh, free markets or protected markets. To me, it doesn't bespeak, you know, robust, polarised debate. It bespeaks a complete amorphous uh, inability to cohere around or coalesce around a single set of ideas in a way that's in any way uh, packageable. Um, And so as a result of this lack of discipline and lack of coherence in ideology, you just see people running amok at this point. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the Tories have been uh, too long in power the moment they came into power, but for their own good, I would say, as a as a you know historically formidable winning machine, 
they've just been in power far, far too long. And they seem to be completely running amok and making this. I mean, Nick Robinson said, why not be more honest and just say it's just about you? And I think that that basically hits the nail on the head. It, it is about each one of them jockeying for power, whether it's generic, whether it's Raverman. And I, I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm extremely tired of it all. Um, so on the immigration issue particularly, I think we, we see this in a sense. They've disappeared down a rabbit hole that they think is either electoral gold dust or that the, that the public needs to really care about or needs to be protected from. The reality is, though the immigration debate in this country has been extremely toxic over recent years, and though it is extremely polarised, actually attitudes generally have softened in recent years. They've softened relative to other issues anyway. So, you know, consistently polling data now shows that people care more about the NHS. They care more about housing. Um, in 2023. And yet what you see is, is the Tory party still trying to make this, throw this kind of red meat to what it assumes is a, a critical mass base, which will help them win the next election. They do the same kinds of, kinds of things with trans issues and so on. They would rather maintain culture wars positions as a way, as they see it, of winning elections and being viable electorally than actually doing things that are cost smart and also practicable. Rwanda is a good example. The barges, another good example. Neither of them so far have worked and they've cost, to use that old Daily Mail phrase, the taxpayers a hell of a lot of money. But the Tory party, in, in this sort of cloud, this miasma of individual jockeying for power and also disappearing down the rabbit hole, is you know, obsessed with sticking to these things because it would rather maintain culture war positions. And I think in the case of Braverman and Jenerick, I'm sorry to say, it's probably, they probably think, that you know, they're probably right that that's electorally smart for them in, as individuals, because when they are, when Sunak eventually does probably lose the election, they will be well-placed with a certain electorate. But ultimately, these are impractical policies and they cost a lot of money. And to me, it seems perfectly apparent that the Tories are doing it because they want to try and appeal to some either imaginary or oversized uh, lowest common denominator. Now, before we move on, we are running a fundraising campaign for Navarra Media at the moment. And as part of that, we've released a behind the scenes video about our Sunday interview show, Downstream. If you haven't seen it already, here's a little snippet with Ash. So I actually think the pluralism of Downstream is a bit different from the pluralism of the organisation because the pluralism of the organisation is what are the kinds of editorial frameworks and understandings that we want to have. So we're not so pluralistic that we'd go, yeah, let's commission this the way the Telegraph or the Spectator would. That's not what we're interested in doing. We're talking about a kind of left pluralism where the political composition of the organisation goes from like anarchists and communists to people who are social democrats and within that there's obviously a whole load of variety as well. So it's about creating a space where all the different ways someone who is broadly left-wing might think about something can be represented. If you want to watch more of that video with Ash and Aaron, the full version is on our channel and the link is in the description below. But there's another link in the description that's even more important and that is navaramedia.com slash support because your support is what makes Navara Media possible. So thank you very much for supporting independent media. We're hoping to gain 5,000 more regular supporters though. And on that front, let's take a look at where we're at with that goal. Look at that. Three and a half thousand of you have signed up in recent months to support Navarra Media on top of the 10,000 we already had. It means that we're less than 1,500 people away from hitting our target. If you're new and want to see that counter go up further, head to navarramedia.com slash support and consider setting up a monthly donation. However small, these donations really, literally keep us going. Let's go to our next story, and we should warn you that this story does contain graphic and distressing images. Today marks two months since Israel began its assault on Gaza, and in that time, more than 17,000 
1,000 Palestinians have been killed, with nearly 50,000 injured. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society has said that 60% of those injured require urgent treatment abroad, a testament to the near total collapse of Gaza's healthcare systems. But the bombs keep falling. This was NASA Hospital this morning, where residents of Khan Yunus sought treatment after dawn airstrikes on the city. Khan Yunus has become a new centre for fighting as the Israeli military presses south from Gaza City. Palestinians have been ordered to evacuate large parts of the city with tens of thousands moving even further south to Rafah. But now Rafah is also reported to have been hit by airstrikes overnight. Officials say 15 people were killed after a house was bombed. In the north of the territory, the Jabalia refugee camp also continues to be attacked and more potential atrocities are taking place there. Israel claims that Jabalia is home to Hamas strongholds. We've heard this a lot before. And Haaretz has now posted this photograph from Jabalia. It shows dozens of Palestinian men stripped and kneeling on the road. Haaretz say it represents the IDF's largest capture of Hamas soldiers since the war began. But Palestinians have said that among those captured are journalists and teenagers, civilians. Their fates remain totally unknown as of broadcast. The BBC has also reported intense shelling of Jabalia by the IDF, despite tens of thousands of people who are still living there. In Bedlahaya, also in northern Gaza, footage has emerged that appears to show the IDF targeting the Khalifa school, where 7,000 displaced people are reported to be sheltering. Besides military assault, the Palestinians who have remained in northern Gaza are suffering from extraordinary food shortages. According to the World Food Programme, 97% of households in northern Gaza have inadequate food. Nearly half of them are suffering from severe levels of hunger, with 90% having spent at least one full day and night without food. And it isn't much better in the south. There, 83% of households have inadequate food consumption, with 38% suffering severe levels of hunger, Two-thirds of households have also spent at least one whole day and night without food. Bombardment, starvation, loss of loved ones and the constant threat of death would be a horrific ordeal for anyone. But in the last two months, Gaza's children have suffered unimaginably. More than 7,000 children have died in the assault so far and tens of thousands are injured. Many have been orphaned in a bombing campaign that has targeted schools, and residential buildings. And of course, that's before you think of the trauma that comes from being a child whose life, limb or loved one could be taken at any moment. Mahmoud Kudoa is a Palestinian journalist living in the Gaza Strip with his family. And he posted this video of his own children's reactions to the bombs. Imagine learning that to react like that at such a young age. And we'll be covering the psychological impact of the war in Gaza in later depth in future shows. But despite all of this carnage, all of this footage, all of this evidence, some of the most powerful members of the international community continue to remain silent. Oxfam has today said that the silence of key political leaders makes the international community complicit in the unfolding catastrophe in Gaza. Ironically, if you read that report, Oxfam are silent in naming which leaders in particular, but one surefire guess probably rhymes with Mo Haydn. And in an extraordinary move, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter, which calls for the Security Council to act immediately to end this war. Now, this article is rarely used. It was last invoked in 1989. It's only implemented when the Security Council has been judged to be inactive on impending catastrophe. It allows the Secretary General to, quote, bring to the attention of the Security Council any matter which, in his opinion, may threaten the maintenance of international peace and security. It also allows him to call a meeting of the Security Council, something only members can usually do. In his letter invoking the article, Guterres wrote this. 
The situation is fast deteriorating into a catastrophe with potentially irreversible implications for Palestinians as a whole and for peace and security in the region. Such an outcome must be avoided at all costs. The international community has a responsibility to use all its influence to prevent further escalation and end this crisis. The five permanent members of the Security Council, the US, UK, Russia, China and France, all hold veto power over any resolution he might bring forward. So what was Israel's response to Guterres' action? Foreign Affairs Minister Eli Cohen said this. Guterres' tenure is a danger to world peace. His request to activate Article 99 and the call for a ceasefire in Gaza constitutes support of the Hamas terrorist organization and endorsement of the murder of the elderly, the abduction of babies and the rape of women. Anyone who supports world peace must support the liberation of Gaza from Hamas. If you want to know the truth of any situation, I really would just regard any statement from Israeli officials as opposite day and then you'll see what's actually going on. Kieran, no doubt the US will veto any resolution brought to the Security Council because obviously they're the global police and that's aimed at achieving a ceasefire. But does this finally suggest some action from parts of the international community? You know, Moya, I think that's a difficult question to answer as a Palestinian. Um, And I think it's a difficult question to answer actually for people who have supported Palestine and Palestinians for a very long time. I think that... We've been so accustomed to being abandoned, to being double-crossed, to having lip service, window dressing, and so on, that the idea of becoming excited about Article 99 and the international community pushing us in a positive direction or in a direction toward liberation from our colonizers is is one that I find personally a tough sell. It's jumping the shark a little bit at this stage. But I don't say any of that to be cynical or to indulge in some kind of counsel of despair. I think pessimism is the last thing we need right now, particularly in the light of the horrific images that that were just shown. Um, I think what we need is optimism but i want it to be a realistic optimism or optimism grounded in you know something viable and what i see as the major shift the cause for optimism if such a thing exists at the moment is and i've said it i think previously on the var but it's the shift in international global public opinion and i think when i talked about it before i talked about it kind of in sentimental terms. I said that it meant something to Palestinians. Okay, sentimental perhaps is is an unfair word to use. It's valuable as a sentimental thing, and and it does help Palestinians. But it's also, it can also be something that is cold and hard and material and realistic if it translates, if if it's upscaled, if it's writ large into electoral politics. And I think that there is a real possibility now at this juncture that showing solidarity with Palestine and being pro-Palestinian becomes a currency in global electoral politics. That's what we need to try and seize upon. If that's reached the table of the UN Security Council, then, then great. And I believe that Guterres means what he's saying. I actually do. I think he genuinely does want to try and ameliorate the condition for people in Gaza. I think he is genuinely very frustrated with the way that Israel has conducted itself. Do I think that enlightened vanguards or enlightened technocrats at the United Nations, however well-meaning, will be the locus of, sh- of, of the shift of power on this? No, I don't. I think it will actually come from the bottom up. I really mean that. I'm not just saying it because it's a lefty thing to say. I really think that that's the only hope at this point in time. Now, of course, I should say, and not really as a bookend, I should have said it at the the beginning, that Palestinians have, through their resilience and continued internal pressure and attempts to link up with international civil society, are the ones who who have created this groundswell of international support. I can remember marching when I was about 11, 12, 11 years old, long time ago, it would be a very, very good march indeed if 5,000 people showed up in London 
And in my hometown, Brighton, it would be a very good march indeed if 100 people showed up. I don't need to tell anybody listening or watching that we've seen a million people march in one solitary march for Palestine in the past few weeks. If we can canalise that, if we can somehow channel it into electoral politics, we can create a sustainable change in Palestine and in the dynamic of power between Palestine and Israel and others in the region. But am I excited about the United Nations and am I excited about the international community shifting at that level, at the institutional level? Not really. I think that's a very interesting observation, um, especially given the small changes we've seen in electoral campaigns. I think it was Newham, a councillor, uh, was elected as an independent uh, in after she resigned um, from the Labour Party because of their position on Palestine. And, you know, there's another march, national march, happening on Saturday in London. But speaking of material solidarity, that leads us on very nicely to our next story. Activists across Europe have today blockaded arms manufacturers that were supplying Israel with weapons. Pickets have taken place in Paris, Copenhagen and Leiden in the Netherlands. There's also been pickets at four sites in the UK, with 1,000 trade union activists blockading defence factories that produce parts of Israeli fighter jets. Organising under the banner Workers for a Free Palestine, activists picketed sites in Glasgow, Lancashire and Brighton, and 600 of them picketed the Eton Mission System site in Dorset. Reporting from there for Navarra Media is Claire Hymer. I'm here today in Dorset, where over 600 activists and trade unionists are blockading a factory which makes parts for Israeli fighter jets. Activists are blocking all the entrances to the site, stopping workers and lorries from going in and out. This action is one of four taking place across Britain today, drawing attention to the UK's role in Israel's war on Gaza. So this factory we're standing in front of um, builds components um, that are part of the F-35 um, fighter jet and um, that fighter jet is currently being used in bombardments on Gaza. So this really goes to show, you know, the the fact that um, British labour um, is being utilised um, for war crimes in um, in Palestine and the airstrikes that have um, targeted those, you know, schools and hospitals and ambulances and neighbourhoods and refugee camps um, are, are dropped from planes that uh, that are manufactured in this factory we're standing in front of right now. So can you explain a bit about what you're doing here today? Yeah, sure. So I'm part of the worker liaison team. So we meet the workers at the gate, explain why we're picketing and encourage them to not come into work today. And what's the reaction been so far? So we've had some positive responses. People um, share our concerns, um, are also not happy with what's going on in Gaza. Some people have been a bit more negative. Um, we've had some aggression. Some people have tried to cross the picket. One person uh, tried to ram us with their car, but... With the liaison team and the picket, um, we held firm and, and pushed them away. No worker in, no weapons out! No worker in, no weapons out! We've actually escalated massively. The first action that Workers for Free Palestine did, there was around 150 of us. Um, the last one was about 400. And now today, um, in, a, in four sites across the UK, we have 1,000 people out blockading entrances to Israeli arms factories. What motivates 600 people to get up so early on a really cold December morning to come down here, do you think? I think the killing of babies and people en masse like we're seeing and with our government being complicit and factories in our country being complicit, is that's enough to get me out of bed. Not much will get me out of bed at 3am, but that will. And obviously you're here as a doctor, you're wearing scrubs. Why, as doctors, do you think it's important to be here today? There's a huge health crisis that's been caused by this. You've not only got people that are being killed and injured in the war itself, but you've now got things like hepatitis, and there's been talk of cholera spreading through um, Gaza because of the complete lack of clean water and all of the sanitation systems that we need to survive. Also, what we are seeing is the um, criminalization of health workers speaking up for Gaza. So the more of us that step out in a public way like this and show our solidarity the safer all of our colleagues are who are saying very justified things like stop killing babies stop killing palestinians and are facing disciplinary action at work for it we know that um from 
from the role that workers have played historically in um, anti-oppression and anti-apartheid struggles, um, the important role, um, and anti-colonial, anti-imperial struggles, the important role that workers play in building solidarity. We know that, um, you know, our work isn't going to be done overnight, and this is part of a long strategy. Um, and, you know, when we look at the, the way that um, Irish workers mobilised and British workers mobilised around the anti-apartheid movement, we know that ultimately um, through uh, worker mobilisations and through workers organising, um, we eventually will, will win. And we're here today um, as, you know, one step on the long path to Palestinian liberation. There's another Navarra media story that we should mention that relates to the UK's relationship with Israel's occupation. A British charity has donated more than £1 million to a group described by Israel's newspaper record, Haaretz, as Israel's largest militia. The charity in the spotlight is the JNF. Rivka Brown reports that they have made donations to the land defence org Hashoma Hashadesh, which defends Israeli land and illegal settlements. If you want to read more about that story and about the trade union movement for Palestine, you can do so on navaramedia.com. The link is in the description box below. Let's go to our next story. Boris Johnson has spent a second uncomfortable day giving testimony to the COVID inquiry, but family members of those who died have found his account less than convincing. Trisha Barnett's brother died during the pandemic. She was at the inquiry today and gave Sky News this account of Johnson's performance. It's very difficult to get your head around how this man, which, who shows no empathy, no understanding, and who was clearly drowning when he needed to make decisions, how to understand how easily he seems to get away from Mr. Keith's questioning. He just blusters and blusters and everything moves on. So I felt very dissatisfied with the questioning this morning until our own council, COVID-19 families, council took over. Um, but I just felt that Johnson's just um, had hours and hours of tuition about how to answer and how to respond. And he seems to be able to very skillfully deflect Mr. Keith from really burrowing in to essential questions that he needs to answer. I mean, Johnson's had a lifetime of learning to dodge questions he needs to answer. There was one uncomfortable moment for Johnson at the hearing, though, which was the question of whether he'd ever use the phrase, let it rip, which led to this exchange. My question to you was whether or not you, whilst announcing that you would not listen to those who had said, let the virus rip, had used the words, your phrase, uh, used the words yourself, you, you deny that. So could you please look at the diaries? Sorry, I, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that this was a phrase in common uh, parlance at the time and, Patrick, and, and, and remains so. Sir Patrick Valence's diaries, 273901, page 92. Yes, actually having a discussion, a meeting with the PM about, quote, letting it rip, page... But, I don't wish to be... Uh, um, I'm just going to put... Rep repetitive, uh, but this uh, is exactly what you'd expect me to be talking about at, at this stage. Page 245. This is June, 20, June 2020. I'm going to show you all the ones, Mr Johnson, out of fairness. The Prime Minister meeting begins to argue for letting it rip saying, yes, there will be more casualties, but so be it. They've had a good innings. 6.08. Perhaps that's the same. 4.39. We should let it rip a bit. 150. He's obsessed with older people accepting their fate. 230. Obsessed with the average age of death being 82. 
which is longer, you believe, than the average life expectancy. Get COVID, live longer, you said. Can't really write it, can you? A Conservative Prime Minister has such disdain for his electorate, he's willing to kill off his entire Tory voting base. At another point, Johnson's expertise on evas- at evasion was on solid display. Both Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance, the chief medical and scientific officers during the pandemic, have said that Rishi Sunak's eat out to help out scheme was not discussed with them. That scheme in which customers were given vouchers to fill restaurants in the summer of 2020 is thought to have contributed to an autumn peak in COVID infections. Johnson was asked about the statement he submitted to the inquiry in which he said the scientific advisers were consulted on the scheme. In your statement, you do say in terms... The scheme was, quote, to use your words, properly discussed, including with Chris and Patrick. I, I, I did say that, and that, that was my belief. And I, I don't understand how that... I don't understand how something as um, well-publicised as, as that as, uh, could have been smuggled past the, um, the scientific advice. I don't, I don't see how that could have happened. So that we're entirely clear about this, your statement appears to positively suggest that it was properly discussed, including with Chris and Patrick. You're the one who suggests in your statement that the persons with whom it was discussed included the CMO and the the GCSA. But now today, you're saying you're not sure whether it was discussed with them and you're surprised that it wasn't. Is that the position? The reason I said that in my statement is because I frankly assumed that it must have been discussed uh, with them. And I'm, I'm perplexed as to how something as significant as that could have got through. I mean, it was, there, was, there, was, there must have been several meetings of COVID-S and COVID-O, which it was discussed. So I'm, you, you understand that you make a positive averral. It was properly discussed. That word properly is your word, Mr. Johnson, not, not the inquiries. Well, that's, that's indeed my memory. And I, I, I remember the scheme coming up several times. Um, and that's why, I was, as, I, as I told you, I was surprised when later I heard that um, Chris was calling it eat out to help, eat out to help the virus. The topic of lockdown parties at Downing Street also came up with Johnson describing the media coverage of the events, a, quote, travesty of the truth. This is what Amir Anwar, solicitor for the Scottish Bereaved Families, thought about that. Ordinary people were being fined up to £10,000 as our care home workers were being turned, care homes were being turned into killing grounds for the elderly who were being treated as toxic waste while families were not able to be with their loved ones when they died, whilst the bereaved were expected to obey regulations at funerals. Millions of frontline workers risked their lives without adequate PPE, some forced to wear bin bags, and all the while Johnson and his cabinet were living it up at parties, insulting the dead, the poor and the vulnerable. Indeed. Kieran, this inquiry begs the question, how does one pin down a greased pig? Well, certainly not by putting him in front of uh, an inquiry, apparently. Um, I mean, it's incredibly painful to... It it must be incredibly painful for people who lost loved ones during COVID to watch such a thing. Um, Boris Johnson is obviously, you know, such a painfully obvious pathological liar and not very good at it for somebody who's been doing it for so long. And I can't tell... Um, whether that's just because he has been raised to believe it doesn't really matter if people know he's lying. Um, He will still always somehow fail upwards. In any case, um, he's been doing this on our clock for far too long. And as much as anything else, it just consumes a great amount of public discourse, a great amount of public time that could be spent doing other things. There's a tremendous opportunity cost to Mr. Boris Johnson. Uh, you know, I think we're all well past the point of finding him panjandrumish and funny. If ever we did, I'd, I personally didn't. Uh, but it, it's it's always just been a tremendous waste of everybody's time. That's the only way I could see the Boris Johnson phenomenon. I don't have anything particularly profound to say about it beyond that, and beyond that, it, the any laughter that still remains in his favour must be a cacophony to the people who lost loved ones. It must be incredibly painful. And 
uh, yeah, I can't imagine the kind of anger I would feel towards somebody who so brazenly and obviously lies and takes everybody for such fools um, in public like that. He really was the epitome of a politician, the emperor with no clothes on, and he's finally a little bit naked, mewling in front of the world. But will we see any form of justice? I'm not sure. Final story. British poet, writer and campaigner for political justice, Benjamin Zephaniah has died at the age of 65. A statement on Zephaniah's Instagram page announced he had passed away after being diagnosed with a brain tumour eight weeks ago. Born in 1958 in Hansworth, Birmingham, Zephaniah began performing poetry locally in his early teens. In 1979, he published his first collection and over the next decades rose to international fame as a really radical writer and poet, despite being diagnosed with dyslexia and getting kicked out of school at 14. Building that career was not always easy though. In 1987, Zephaniah was shortlisted for a fellowship in poetry at Cambridge. This is how The Sun reported it at the time. Would you let this man near your daughter, the headline reads, and it goes on to say, just what are his qualities that have appealed to Trinity College? He is black, he is Rastafarian, he has tasted approved schools and borstal. That racism was often the subject of Zephaniah's writing. In 2015, Zephaniah performed his poem, I Am Not the Problem, for Newsnight. These are the closing lines. I am not the problem. If you give me a chance, I'll teach you of Timbuktu. I can do more than dance. I am not the problem. I greet you with a smile. You put me in a pigeonhole, but I am versatile. Well, these conditions may affect me. As I get older, and I am positively sure I have no chips upon my shoulders. Black is not the problem. Mother country, get it right. And just for the record, some of my best friends are white. Zephaniah wasn't just concerned about injustice in Britain, though. He was a truly global thinker, and he wrote about South Africa and Palestine, too, among others. Here he is talking about those two countries. When I was young, there were two things that I really wanted to see. A free South Africa and a free Palestine. South Africa is now free. It's not perfect, but at least the South African people have the right to help shape the destiny of their country. But what about the Palestinian people? Their destiny will be decided by President Trump and the Israeli government. Well, it will if the world stands by and does nothing. Eventually, Zephaniah's poems made it onto the school curriculum. In 2008, he was named one of Britain's 50 greatest post-war writers. And as his fame grew, the British establishment that he'd always fought against did what it tries to do, and it tried to amnesh him. In 2003, it offered Benjamin Zephaniah an OBE. This was his take on that offer. The OBE means Order of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. MBE is Member of the British Empire. I've been fighting against empire all my life. I've been fighting against slavery and colonialism all my life. I've been writing to connect with people, not to impress governments and monarchy. So how could I then go and accept an honor that puts the word empire onto my name. That would be hypocritical. You can read more about Benjamin Zephaniah's thoughts on the order of the empire and interact the way the establishment tries to neutralize radical thinkers in an article that he wrote for The Guardian. It's absolutely exhoriating and I really, really recommend it. Just want to say thank you, Kieran, for joining me tonight. I want to thank you for having me. Thanks for having me back. Cheers. I'm sure we'll see you again. And thank you so much to all of you for tuning in. We're going to leave you with a short clip of Benjamin Zephaniah's poetry to close the show. And we'll see you tomorrow. Good night. This poetry won't put you to sleep saying, follow me like your blind sheep. This poetry is not part of political, not designed for those who are critical. This poetry goes with me when I go to my bed. It gets into my dreadlocks and it lingers around my head. This poetry is with me when I am riding my bike. I have tried Shakespeare, respect Junior, but this is the stuff I like. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.